Hello, and welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast, where we learn about the ocean, share sea stories, and explore ocean careers. I'm your host, Kara Musia. Let's dive into today's episode. Hey, do you want to help the oceans? Have you considered a career in marine biology, but maybe just aren't sure where to start? Head on over to my website, marinebio.life, and subscribe to my newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll receive a free PDF download where you'll learn the seven steps to becoming a marine biologist without the degree. Hello, mermaids, pirates, ocean lovers, and land lovers. Welcome to today's show. Question, what do turtles do on their birthday? They celebrate. What do you call a turtle that is only awake at night? A knock turtle. My guest today is Chris Figener, sea turtle biologist, science communicator, and the scientist that filmed the sea turtle straw video that went viral and sparked a movement around the world. In today's episode, we chat about what brought Chris from Germany to study sea turtles in Costa Rica, why she prefers sea turtle research over whale research, and how one seemingly small action can create an entire movement. Please enjoy. Chris, welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. I am really, really excited to have you on and chat with you today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited. I mean, you've, you've kind of instigated a whole movement against straws, and you've done a lot of really amazing sea turtle work, but I read that you actually, growing up when you were little, were afraid of the ocean, and this is very fascinating to me. So how do you go from being afraid of the ocean to that's what you do? Well, I recommend having a very stern German engineer as a dad, first step, <laughs> uh, that didn't want to put up with your uh, temper tantrums in Greece because he was too embarrassed of you making a scene in front of everyone at the beach. And then him going up to the concession stands to buy a pair of diving goggles because you were making that scene and telling you to please stop doing that and just have a look at what's there. There's nothing to be scared of. So that is pretty much how it started. I mean, I was, I just, I mean, I don't really remember much. I just remember I was standing at like the water. I was like two or three years old and there was stuff under the water and it creeped me out. And yeah, after I had the swimming goggles, I could actually really see what it was. And I just thought that was like the coolest stuff ever. And from that moment on, I was really just a water, a water rat, as we would say in, in German, Wasserratten. And my parents had to drag me out and then would place me also into swimming lessons and all kinds of other stuff. I was a lifeguard for many years. So I really liked the water by now. Um, but yeah, it, it was definitely not like, a, hey, I popped out of my mom's uterus and I was in love with the ocean. So it took about two or three years. <laughs> That's still a very young age to fall in love with the ocean. But I love that's such an engineer for you. Like there's nothing to be afraid of. I will very logically buy you something so you can see what's underneath and you will see for yourself that there's nothing to be afraid of. Yeah, <laughs> that is exactly. Yes. And also very German of him being embarrassed for what his kid, his two year old kid is doing. Right. Because uh, I mean, it's a kid. <laughs> God. But no, it's just like, oh, my God, she's embarrassing me. That's amazing. So, so how did you get into marine biology, though? I mean, you say you went to the beach and you were a lifeguard, but I mean, really, Germany, 
you don't really think ocean when you think Germany at all. Hey, come on. We have two coastlines. We do have the North Sea and we do have a coast at the Baltic Sea as well. Just that as a side note. But yeah, no, I think you're right. I mean, it's not like the country that you would say like, you know, wow, okay. And plus, I grew up completely landlocked. So I grew up in an area that was known for coal mining, really close to the borders with the Netherlands. And interestingly, it was actually closer for us to go to the coast in the Netherlands than it was to go up to the north to our own coastlines. But luckily, my parents were a big ocean lover. So most of our vacations actually happened at the ocean. And then I think my dad, once he noticed that I was really into the ocean, started fostering my interest. So he would, you know, give me those documentaries of Hans Haas, which is like the Austrian Jacusto and his wife to watch. And then uh, Jacusto himself, of course. He also himself had actually quite a few books of Jacusto, by Jacusto and Hans Haas. And when I was 13, I actually started interning at the local aquarium. Um, so they had sea lions and dolphins and all of that jazz. I mean, that's a debate if that's great or not. But what it helped me was really to, to you know, be exposed to also the scientific side. So there was a lot of marine biologists, behavioral biologists that were doing, you know, their master studies, bachelor uh, thesis and all of that. And so I think I got a really good idea of what it would be like to be a marine biologist and what I needed to do to get there. Um, and so from mm -hmm. that point onwards, all of my decisions in my education as well, because in Germany, we have English as a first foreign language in fifth grade or back then it was fifth grade. And then in seventh grade, you would have to choose your second foreign language, which could be either French or Latin. And I chose Latin because back in the days, it was still a requirement for all the sciences to have your grade Latinum. Total waste of my time. I had like to literally sit through seven years of Latin just to find out that this was not a requirement anymore by the time I started studying. But hey, you know, shit happens. Um, and then <laughs> I also got to know that, of course, most of the literature is in English, right? I mean, we are right now also communicating in English. English is not my first language. And I did not want to struggle or have to struggle throughout my studies with just, you know, with the language barrier. And so when I was 16, I went for an exchange here to the United States to kind of tackle my English and get ready to, you know, dive into the biology literature in English. Um, yeah. So I think, you know, there were little stepping stones towards my degree. And then, yeah, and then I just started studying just as normal. Uh, it's a biology degree in Germany. There's no... There's no specialization as a, in, in your bachelor's up until you get to your master's. That's where you're like literally able to like choose your courses. Everything else is exactly the same over all the universities. It's just that some universities have a better reputation maybe as than others. Yeah, I love that you're highlighting that it's not a specialized degree in marine biology when you're in Europe or because like my my undergrad degree is just straight up biology as well like I was able to because of where I went to school I was able to take a lot of specialized like marine related classes but for the most part like it's just a you just for your undergrad you just get a biology degree and it does make you competitive for jobs um and I that's something I get asked about all, all the time like where can I go for a good marine biology school and the answer is if you're just getting your undergrad, just get like environmental science, bat, a bachelor's in biology, 
and go from there and get your like you volunteered at the aquarium that probably opened a lot more doors and gave you more experience than your degree did right oh yeah totally and I kept on volunteering and kind of going a little bit above and beyond I think throughout my entire career Mm -hmm. so and I think what was interesting is that I really hated my undergrad like I really did not like it because I felt I was doing so much more other stuff than biology. So, you know, where there was so much physics, so much math, so much chemistry. I did so much chemistry, oh Lord. And then, you know, there was also, of course, biology fields that I wasn't super interested in. So I I don't want to lie. Like I didn't particularly enjoy microbiology or or cell biology or even botany. Um, And so I kind of, you know, was a little bit frustrated, I think, at the end of my degree and it was just thanks to a new professor that offered a tropical marine ecology class in Egypt, which was like a big lecture beforehand and a seminar and then like a, a several week month trip to Egypt um, that I was really kind of rediscovering my passion because this class was actually meant for graduate students. But since he was so new at the university, he started advertising it super late. And so I think it was about three undergrads that had the chance to tag along and I was one of them and it was literally reaffirming everything that I've ever dreamed of what biology and being a marine biologist could be uh, because we were developing our own little studies in Egypt um, you know collecting data presenting the data writing a report in like the style of a scientific article so it was super helpful um, to really yeah to kind of understand again of what I was doing what I've learned of how I can apply it And then, you know, the next step was actually that I was, so in Germany back in the days, you couldn't stop after your bachelor's degree. So the the actual degree you would get after your master's, it was called a diploma, like a German diploma, but it's, it's pretty much the equivalent of a master's. And there was no degree in between. And I always really wanted to go to Hamburg because the reason I wanted to become a marine biologist was I wanted to study humpback whales, so Mm. cetaceans, uh, especially humpback whale song and Hamburg, University of Hamburg has a pretty well-known um, working group for, for marine mammals. But they didn't want my degree anymore. So they didn't accept me. And I had to rethink again of, okay, how am I getting to where I want to be? So I really wanted something that was behavior related. I didn't want to have a pure marine biology degree because I wasn't super interested in all the you know, plankton and the physical oceanography part and all of that. I really wanted to have more something that was animal ecology slash behavioral ecology slash behavioral physiology. That's how I envisioned it. Mm -hmm. And so I decided to not go to the coast and actually stay landlocked and go to university that specialized on tropical ecology and animal ecology and behavioral physiology. And that's where I got my master's degree in. And because I just told myself, hey, you know, the concepts are pretty much the same across the board. And where I later on will apply those things, that's totally up to me. And I mean, luckily, my my calculation kind of uh, worked out. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I also, during that time that I was doing my master's, I was, again, able to volunteer. That was uh, kind of what set me up eventually. Yeah. That's, um, that's awesome. So wait, where did you go? You went to your undergrad and your master's in the same place. Is that correct? And where was that? No. So undergrad was at Tübingen University, which is a small town in the south, close to Stuttgart in uh, Baden-Württemberg. That's like the, 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 the state. 
And then for my master's, I went to Würzburg, which is part of Bavaria, but it's actually closer to Frankfurt. Now, did you know after you got your master's that you wanted to continue on to get your PhD or did you take some time and do other things? Yeah, I did not want to do a PhD. Actually, in fact, I hated the whole brainwashing that was happening. (laughs) (laughs) The whole brainwashing that was happening of making you believe there is no job out there for you unless you have a PhD. And so everybody scrambled to find a PhD position, no matter what the actual topic. And they all hated their freaking guts. I mean, I looked at my friends and they, a lot of them didn't finish and some of them finished, but then of course were in such a weird specialized corner in a topic that they would have never chosen themselves mm-hmm. and, you know, are scrambling along. So I decided I don't want any of that. And I said, you know, the world is pretty big. I have a hard time believing that there is no job for me at all with the degree I have. And luckily, I was already connected to Costa Rica at that point and to sea turtles because I had been volunteering here as a research assistant when I was pretty much just starting my master's. And the back then, my back then boss was really interested of hiring me. And that's exactly what he did. So I didn't even ha- I hadn't even written my thesis and I just had con- yeah, finished my the, 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 the data analysis in the sense of I had just done my lab work. And I took pretty much the raw data with me and moved full-time to Costa Rica. I sold everything in Germany, gave everything away. And then I moved to Costa Rica full-time and started working here and writing my thesis. That is incredible. That's like best case scenario, right? You have a job before you actually even finish your schooling. So you said you knew him before beforehand. So how did you get connected with this place in Costa Rica? And where was this? Was, it, was this at... I might butcher the name, Namaka Conservation Science. Well, Namaka Conservation Science is actually my own consulting company at this point. So it's a okay. social enterprise. But no, back then it was an organization called ANAI. And I, see, this is sometimes, I don't know, call it serendipity, irony of life. But I had literally just stepped the first day my foot into the uh, new university in Würzburg. And, you know, when you're at a new place, and you have no clue how to get around, where to go, to report to. So I was waiting in front of this professor's office to have a chance to chat with him about his courses and the coursework. And while I was waiting, I looked at the blackboards. You know, back in the days, people were like pinning up paper to announce, for example, I don't know, that they have a flat to rent out or books to sell or, for example, internships as well. And there was this one internship in Costa Rica with leatherback turtles that was actually advertised by a German um, organization. So I, and it was dated like a few months prior and I knew, okay, this is too late for this season, but I wrote them, Hey, is that something that happens every year or just this season? They were like, yeah, that's something that happens every year, but we are not the ones that actually, you know, the, the, the organization in Costa Rica and we need to con, you know, connect you with them. So they did. And I asked them and they said, yeah, you know what, just apply. And I did, and I got accepted. And so I went for about five months to Costa Rica in 2007 and worked as a research assistant here in Gandoka, which is in the Southern Caribbean, right next to the border with Panama. Uh, and back then, yeah, it was an organization called ANAI. I think they still exist, but they're not involved in sea turtle conservation at all anymore. 
Mm. And yeah, and that is, yeah, that was like my boss back then really liked the way how I worked. It was like jokingly saying, hey, why don't you come back? And I said, well, dude, I still need to do, write my thesis. And he was like, well, why don't you write it here? And I was like, <laughs> well, okay, that's an idea. So I found <laughs> me a professor that would, you know, actually be willing to support me and found me some money because I mean, emotionally support and, and academically, but not necessarily financially. Mm -hmm. I mean, she gave pretty much her entire lab space and everything I needed, but for the actual travel, I needed to get some money and also for what I was, you know, doing here in the field. And then I went another year to Costa Rica and collected my data for the, for the actual thesis. That it, that's such a serendipitous story. I love that so much that it's like, you were just looking at a random board, like what's on this. And, and it was an out of date, internship and you followed up and it worked out and it's created this amazing career path for you totally yeah and i mean it was it also totally took me away from humpback whales which is funny because <laughs> i was always totally you know where other people collected backstreet boys uh, articles and copied them i would literally like go through every magazine anything any book and i would copy out like the articles and all the the the, the, the yeah the chapters and had like this big binders just on humpback whales and cetaceans. So do you get to work with humpbacks at all now? You know what's funny? I have worked with humpback whales in the meantime, actually for quite a few years, because the project in the Southern Caribbean that I, you know, started with and also worked for a few years kind of collapsed. And nothing happened there for, well, almost a decade. And while that happened, you know, I needed to find some other work. And I had been working on both sides of the coast, so Caribbean and then also on the Pacific side, because leatherbacks, that's the species I've been mainly working with. I have been working with two nests asynchronically, but then I had this one season where I had nothing to do. And I happened to work for a company that was sending volunteers to this one particular project and they liked how I worked. So I became a research associate with them for many years and I did part of their humpback whale work. And it is interesting work but I do not like it as much as sea turtle work because you are always on a boat. I mean, you know, it's not like you with sea turtles. It's such a hands on experience, such a physical experience. And, you know, if you do it right, you don't have to freak out the animal. But when you work with dolphins or whales, a lot of times it's like you're standing for hours on end at a boat looking through binoculars or if they're really close, you're looking at them. And most of the stuff, the cool stuff actually happens underwater. But you only see, you know, mm -hmm. some fins above water and you take, of course, a lot of photos of fins and water uh, and water and some more fins. And yeah, I don't know. It's interesting, but I kind of miss the, you know, the walking on the beach, the being able to handle the animal um, that comes with uh, sea turtle work. Yes. Let's dive in a little bit more into your sea turtle work. So you mentioned walking on the beach, handling the animal. I know you're on boats with sea turtles as well. So could you describe a little bit what your research is and maybe we just start like where you started in Costa Rica and looking at the leatherbacks and what that looked like and how that's kind of evolved? Yeah, so I think in general, there's like two large categories in the work that I do. And I started out in this one category, which is a beach work, as we call it, we have like beach work and in-water work. So beach work is usually... Um, about the nesting females so you have the females that come to nest at night which of course is sometimes very tiring and you are trying to 
do or to support or collect data for long-term monitoring studies. So that means you tag those females so you can recapture them in the same season or in the years to come. But it also gives you an idea of how many females are actually present in the population because all of the females lay more than one nest per season. And then, of course, you're trying to safeguard those females as well as their eggs, try to make or pretty much set them up for success. So that means a lot of times you're relocating the nest to safer spots on the beach where they can incubate without being disturbed by other natural predators or humans that are trying to steal it. Or a lot, another big problem we have here in Costa Rica is the erosion of the beach. And if you go to the Pacific side, it's actually temperatures. So they are really, really hot temperatures that are beyond lethal. And so a lot of times we need to shade certain areas in order to incubate the nest successfully. And so for that work, of course, we are on the beach many hours at night, rain or not, and try to do all of that. And then in the end of the nesting season, we are also having a lot of excavations because we need to figure out how successful have we been with our you know, conservation efforts because we want to know how many babies we've produced, how successful the single nests were. And so we're digging up pretty much every single nest that has been laid, try to count how many shells we have, how many closed eggs we still have, and are able to, from that data, to pretty much uh, calculate like the overall percentage of hatching success, the overall percentage of emerged babies, and then also get an idea of how many adults we might have Measuring reproductive success like tells part of the story, right? You can count how many nesting females are coming up by their tracks and also visually seeing them. And then you go back and then you're digging up these nests. So you see how many eggs hatched and didn't hatch. If there's any live or dead turtles left in the nest. And you can kind of get a more complete picture by looking at that. But in Florida, we dig up just a percentage of the nests because that we get lots of nesting turtles. Um, how many nests do you get and how many are you digging up? So it depends on the project, right? So we have, when I work with Eastern Pacific leatherbacks, for example, where we have literally only nine nesting females and a total of 30 nests. So we dig up every single nest in the sense okay. of, uh, for example, here where I live right now and work right now, we have about 150 to 300 nests. We're trying to find every single nest and dig it up. Sometimes we are not able to. So I would say, I think last year we had about 80% that we were able to recover. But if you have, of course, a project such as in Austria, where we're working with synchronized mass nestings, where you have every month close to like half a million turtles on the beach, it's literally like a way of how to even estimate how many there are. So we do transects there and we are doing also um, a certain transect and spattered um, calculation of how many nests were laid and what the success is by having little um, hoses kind of stuck into the beach before the Adibada. And then it's going to be like meter squares that are kind of duck around. So we can calculate of, you know, how many menace we have per square meter, how many of them are from the last Aribada, how many are from the one um, previously, and what is the hatching success. And we kind of have to, you know, it's an estimate. So we take a sample of the actual, of the actual population that's nesting there, if that makes sense. Yes, it does. So I want to back up a second, and you're describing that 
erivadas, right? So this is, and you said it so eloquently, a synchronized mass nesting. And it makes it sound like it's a lovely dance and the turtles are in sync and on harmony. And it's like a beautiful poetic thing. And I mean, I guess in some ways it's very poetic, but it's like kind of chaos on the beach, right? You, you mentioned how many turtles are coming up on the beach at the same exact time, throwing sand everywhere. And these are not little turtles. These are like a few hundred pound beasts crawling up and throwing sand and making nests. Can you describe what an arabata is like? <laughs> yeah, so it's like an arabata is literally the synchronized landing of, I mean, it depends on the month, but, you know, in the biggest arabats, up to half a million turtles at the same time <laughs> on the beach. I mean, at the same time, it's relative because usually the large arabatas happen within seven days, the smaller ones, maybe just three or four days at night, usually not as much during the day. And you will have at any given time throughout those Aribadas, like several thousand turtles on the beach, which is really impressive. I mean, they're the smallest turtles, so it's not like you have leatherbacks crawling all over each other, but you have these, you know, 35 kilogram animals. And so... It, yeah, so it's, it's, I would, I don't know if I would say it's chaotic. It's definitely um, super impressive still. And it's, I mean, it smells pretty bad because, you know, they dig up each other's nests and also nests from previous Adibadas, which like have decaying eggs inside. And it's a lot of noise, which is really funny because this, they have this little dance in order to compact the sand. And so, they are bouncing and kind of hitting the sand with their carapace and you can hear it and it's like when thousands of turtles doing that at the same time it's pretty <laughs> cool but of course you also have to be careful as a researcher if you leave your backpack somewhere unattended that some of the turtles might happen to you know get stuck with their flippers and drag it down the beach and into the water so it has happened before or you you know trying to count some eggs of one turtle and another one either tries to crawl on top of you or is throwing some nasty, disgusting egg mixed with sand goo into your face while you are trying to concentrate and see how many the other turtle is popping out. So it is, you know, it's, it's like this mixture of like being super in awe, but also super disgusting. And you smell absolutely atrocious after a <laughs> night of Aribada, I can tell you that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I can recommend if you ever have the chance to see it, definitely do so. We have three are like two and a half Arribada nests or Arribada beaches here in Costa Rica, which are really super, super cool. That's awesome. I have a few friends that have gone down to volunteer to do that. And it's on my list because I've just heard stories and from what you described, it sounds absolutely incredible and like quite an experience. <laughs> yeah, it is definitely an experience. And the nice thing is you will never have a lack of data or, you know, not enough turtles which happens if you work with a species like, you know, the Eastern Pacific leatherback, where you can walk at night for many weeks without seeing a single turtle. And then finally you have one and then you have weeks again without a turtle. Right. Which makes you appreciate, you know, turtles that come more frequently, a lot more. That come regularly. Right. So how did you decide to get your PhD then? I mean, you got your master's, you had a job, like how, how did you make that jump? Yeah, it was okay. For, so I was within this, like, you know, working on both coastlines for um, actually several years 
before I got a little bit frustrated maybe with you know me being a female scientist in a foreign country having a lot of male bosses that were just in the office not really having the insights of field work but making the you know the final decisions on a lot of stuff that I didn't always agree yeah. with also you know they were blocking sometimes my trial to publish any scientific data since it wasn't my data I couldn't really you know go without them and then lastly the last straw was actually that one of my good friends and colleagues was killed here in Costa Rica at a nesting beach in the on the on the Caribbean um just close to the big uh, shipping port that we have here. And I think it made me feel very acutely that maybe my impact isn't big enough. And mm. I felt very powerless. And I think I just tried to figure out a way of how I could increase my impact, how I do, how I could do more, how I could, you know, put the lever at a different point. Mm -hmm. And so the only way of how I could think about it was like, maybe I need to go back to school to get a PhD, so I would become an autonomous scientist, you know, I wouldn't have to depend on other people signing for me, because I also had a conservation, or I still have a conservation biology class that regularly happened here in Costa Rica, but I always needed, like, you know, other professors that would sign up for the credits, because I didn't have a PhD. Mm. So all of that was kind of feeling, okay, I want to be an independent scientist, I want to make my own decisions, I want to have my own NGO, And I feel like I need to get my PhD. And that was really the reason of why I set out to look for a lab and somebody that would align with what I was interested in. That was sea turtles and hopefully Costa Rica. And that is how I stumbled across my academic advisor, Dr. Pamela Plotkin, who is at Texas A&M University. Mm -hmm. And yeah, and it was really great because she knew Costa Rica. She was really passionate about what I was doing as well. And so we had a really great while I was doing my PhD. That's awesome. You brought up kind of, a, you brought up a lot of points. So the reason why you couldn't publish the work that you were doing is because technically you were working for a, another organization, right? And so, t and so the data that you're collecting was really their data. Is that kind of explain it? Yes, absolutely. That was exactly the problem. So, you know, there were situations where it was like saying, hey, we have, for example, we had just discovered that we were able to raise the hatching success of leatherback nests at our beach by cleaning the sand with seawater or actually taking the sand from this from the shoreline where the water was washing and we were able to raise our hatching success from 15% to 65% and i said hey we should publish that and my boss was like ah i don't think this is interesting enough And then I at least was kind of able to present that at a symposium. But then another professor came up to me and was like, so Chris, are you going to publish that? And I was like, I don't think so. I was told we're not. So he got a student, repeated our, you know, all entire study and published with her, which was totally jillage. I mean, he even asked me, but I knew that I wasn't going to be able to publish it, right? Because I wasn't the main boss right there. Yeah, that's very frustrating. So wait, tell me again what you just, what this paper that you didn't get to publish said you the nests were getting too hot and so that you were able to like sprinkle water on them and cool them down enough to increase their reproductive success yeah so what happened was that in Austria where we were working uh, you have the synchronized mass nesting so you have an insanely amount of decaying 
organic matter on that beach because of all the olive ridley nests that are incubating there. Mm-hmm. So the sand is actually more like soil and not like sand. Mm-hmm. And but also we have the problems with these really high natural sand, like the the, the uh, high sand temperatures. Mm-hmm. But for many, many years, the project that I worked for was trying to lower the sand temperatures. And by the time I started working there, um, I saw, I was like, well, the temperatures are okay at this point. So the temperature are not the reason that we're not getting beyond 15% hatching success. So I kind of kept on thinking, I was like, well, every time we build the hatchery, we're only sifting the sand. We're not really, we're not really, you know, getting the organic bacteria, fungi, and whatever else there might be in there out. And of course, they're using up oxygen and our eggs need oxygen. So we decided or I decided, okay, we need probably to put the hatchery slightly closer to the waterline. So there is more tidal ventilation. And then we had this idea that, first of all, we did it in secret. We actually didn't tell our boss because we thought he would not agree. Um, so we just do one line of the hatchery with, you know, these the sand from the waterline. And it was like a total success. So in the end, we presented it and said, you know, hey, I think this works. So he gave us the permission to do half the hatchery. So or I, I decided to have half the hatchery. So you have a control and, of course, the, you know, the treated side. And it was so obvious that, you know, the treated side had 65% hatching, hatching success, whereas the non-treated side had just 50% hatching success, about the same as always. So after that, we were completely switching to that new technology uh, or the new treatment method. And it was just taking, instead of taking the sand from where it was and sifting, we would literally take out all the sand at one, like about one meter, a little bit deeper than that from the, like the you know, the square that we, we measured and then fill it with the sand from the waterline that had been completely, you know, washed over with the tides. Mm-hmm. So it was a lot of work, but so worth it because it did work. It made it, did make a difference. That's really interesting. So you're cre- so you do move the eggs then. You're taking these eggs that are laid and putting them in your own little incubator or hatchery as you called it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I always am very critical of, you know, of conservation measurements that are very much messing with natural selection, but certain, you know, populations that are already that critically endangered such as the Eastern Pacific leatherback which has about 300 nesting females left from Mexico all the way down to Ecuador. And then we have the situation in Austria now where literally every single natural leatherback nest has a 0% hatching success. So there was enough justification to say, okay, we cannot leave these few nests and try to incubate them because we already know they're not going to incubate. Mm-hmm. So we are at least going to hatch some babies from those nests in this you know, controlled environment. Yes. But, for example, at the beach that I'm working on right now, we are not even having a hatchery. So we are relocating if they're too close to the waterline, if they are in danger of being poached. But other than that, like, I really prefer to leave it natural because, you know, nature usually knows best. And you don't know if, you know, a turtle has any kind of defect that might be laying its eggs too close to the waterline. And if she's passing that defect onto its babies. And that way we're creating all little retarded turtles. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. That's fascinating. And it, yes, it, <laughs> I mean, it makes sense. Let nature do its thing for the most part. But when we're at critical levels, I love that the intervention works and, and you found this, this method that actually really helped um, in a pretty non-invasive way. Yeah, I really, I really, it was exhilarating. And I mean, that's just one example of where I wasn't able to publish. Let's talk about what you did publish. 
I haven't actually published that much for the time that I have already worked in sea turtle conservation, you know, for that reason, which is really frustrating. Yeah. But I have been able to publish right now my master thesis, which was great. And I have been able to publish at least the first chapter of my PhD already. I'm still having about three or four papers in the pipeline. Um, but yeah, I can tell you it's a painful process to publish. <laughs> Gosh. Why is it so painful? Can you give like an overview? And then I do want to get into some more of your research because you do have you do have quite a few things published. I'm looking at your scientific publication list right now. Why is it so painful? Why is it so painful? Yeah, it is painful just because I think, I mean, first of all, I think I, I have gotten better at it, but in the beginning when I started out, just not being native speaker is very, um, I know it's a lot of imposter syndrome, I think, right there. So I have always felt my English is good enough, you know, to really write at that level. Mm -hmm. So I think I, a lot of times, just kind of procrastinated and didn't do it. But then again, also one of my first big publications was a review. And oh man, I told every one of my friends, if I ever, ever, ever have the idea of writing a review again, that they should slap me really, really hard in my <laughs> face. And yeah, because this is, it's so much work. And I think for like one and a half years, I haven't done anything else than, you know, looking through different research papers, summarizing that research and getting frustrated of lack of information or how people have written their paper. And yeah, I mean, luckily it, it went out eventually. It was a really big chunk of, um, of writing and I'm super proud of it now, but I do not want to repeat the process. So to bring it down a little bit so a review is like actually reviewing other people's research and the papers that they've published and you're making your own scientific and drawing your own scientific conclusions and deductions based on their research versus what you were doing before which is like going out in the field and collecting your own data and synthesizing your own data correct exactly yes and to make it more interesting so we didn't only like we pretty much gave a summary of like what has been published in the, the, the field of stable isotope analyses and sea turtles, which is a way of how you can analyze diet in sea turtles without actually having to look at the stomach content, but you just need to take a snip of a tissue, can be blood, can be, can be carapace, so the keratin layer of, of the shell, or it can be a piece of skin as well. And you can travel back in time to, for example, when I take it from a nesting female, I know what she ate like six months ago or two weeks ago, or even 13 years ago in some cases. This blows my mind. Genetics was like not my favorite topic. So the, like this whole stable isotope analysis is like mind blowing to me. Well, okay. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a really neat technique. It's not super accurate. It becomes more accurate if you're also able to sample potential prey items. And then okay. there's this really cool application, kind of advanced Bayesian statistics, where you can actually say, oh, she probably eats mainly whatever, that's this species of algae or that species of mollusk or whatever. But in the basic sense, you're usually using, in the majority of the cases, two stable isotopes, which is stable carbon and stable nitrogen. And okay. um, stable isotopes in itself, it's kind of, you know, if you go back in chemistry, you kind of have... Uh, the same element in with different masses. Uh, so you usually carbon is 12, but the stable carbon is 13. So it works the same. It's just that photosynthetically, like certain 
plants preferably use either carbon 12 or carbon 13. So depending on what the ratio between the two is, you actually know where that plant is growing. So usually, you know, or what photosynthetic process they use. So if you remember that it's like back in high school, we learned about like C3 plants and C4 slash camp plants. So usually in the in the ocean, you have C3 plants and on, on land, you have C4 camp plants. And that means there is like this, um, first of all, carbon, if I take a snap from a turtle now, um, it is pretty much the carbon ratio that she has reflects of what the baseline producers are. So that means what are the photosynthesis making organisms in her environment that she is, you know, part of the food chain of. Mm-hmm. And carbon therefore gives you an idea of the spatial component. So does she feed close to the coast or does she feed in the open ocean? Um, so because the more outside in the open ocean is, the more depleted carbon 13 is or the ratio is um, because, you know, algae use a different type of photosynthesis than land plants. And if you're close to the coast, you have a lot of river runoffs. So that means you will get the signature of plants that are like C4 and other. And then nitrogen is really cool because nitrogen actually gives you an idea of where in the food chain the organism that you're sampling is based because there is a certain form of enrichment. So that means if you know if you are a, herb- a herbivore and you're eating on a plant, so your nitrogen is not the same as the plant that you ate, but it's slightly enriched. And so with every step, so then you are eaten by like the first kind of first level predators that that predators level is again, a little bit enriched in nitrogen. Mm -hmm. And so the top predators have these really high levels of nitrogen. So for example, even in humans, if you are vegetarian and I take a snip from you, I can tell you vegetarian because you're like, you know, not having a very high nitrogen um, ratio. Mm -hmm. And then if I would take a snip, for example, from a meat eater, I would totally be able to tell that this person is eating meat. Um, And uh, if I take, for example, different tissues, I might be telling, hey, but a year ago, you were still eating meat, but now you're eating just plants. You know, that's the idea of the tissue. So if I, for example, do a layering of the carapace of sea turtles, I can see, for example, because sea turtles, usually when they're small, uh, kind of post-hatching, they go out into the open ocean, stay there for several years, and then recruit back to coastal waters. And usually most sea turtle species, even though they, they might become more herbivorous as they grow older, mm-hmm. so that means like eating more plants when they grow older, they mostly are omnivorous when they are out in the open ocean. And then you can see this you know, sharp decline in nitrogen values when they recruit to the coastline. So that means if I layer the carapace and can travel back like several years, a lot of times I can see, oh, when did she actually recruit back to the coast? You know, I can see that she was first an omnivore and now she is a herbivore. So that's kind of the cool thing with stable isotopes. That is just mind blowing. Am I smoking your brain right now? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) That is mind blowing to me. Very cool. Yeah, going back to the research and the review. So I have done original uh, research on it. So I have sampled, you know, sea turtle uh, populations and different nesting beaches. And I was actually comparing uh, synchronized mass nesting olive ridleys with, um, in the same population, we have females that nest uh, solitarily. So I wanted mm-hmm. to see if there is a difference in feeding ecology. And that was my original research throughout my PhD. But in order to kind of lead up and save, like, set the stage, I did this review where I was looking, okay, 
what does it actually look like in all the other sea turtle species? What has actually been published and what are the findings? So I was summarizing, you know, the findings, but then we did like this massive meta-analysis on top of the review where we literally kind of um, mined data from all of those papers and put them in a into a huge data set all together and try to reach new conclusions by using all of those data together. Incredible. And sounds like a lot of work. So I can understand why you <laughs> felt a little bit uh, shell-shocked after your review. <laughs> Yeah, it was. And then, of course, a lot of weird math that we needed to do where, you know, we had to invent certain codes in R that were not even, you know, part of a package or other. And I had to consult quite a lot with my statistics professor if, you know, if the route that we were walking on was actually correct. But yeah, eventually right. it worked all out and we got a great publication out of it. So... I want to walk through one of your papers, like one of your original findings, right? So like soup to nuts, what does it look like? You go out in the field and you're collecting, like, let's say your stable isotope research, although you have something here where you have the epibiota, right? Is that when you, when you're studying epibiota, so for listeners, epibiota is living critters that live on other critters. So like barnacles living on sea turtles would be considered epibiota. Was that one of the things that you're studying isotope analysis on? You can, but I didn't. And it was actually, I'm just a co-author, so I'm not a first author. And um, yeah, it was actually the the study that we did when we found the turtle with a straw lodged in its nose. That's where I was going with that. That's what I thought. You're out in the field, you're collecting data, and then you're bringing it back into the lab. And what does that look, what does that analysis look like? Because a lot of listeners think that like marine biologists, you're out in the field all the time and you do get to spend, depending on what you're doing, you can spend a lot of time out in the field. Um, but if you're doing your own research and your own synthesis and writing your own papers, it looks significantly different. Whereas if you're a field tech and you're just out collecting all the research all the time. So could you kind of explain a little bit what that may look like? Right. Yeah. So, for example, like for my master's thesis, I think that's a really neat, uh, small project. So I did a what we call a paternity essay. So I was interested mm -hmm. of figuring out what the mating system is for leatherback turtles in the Caribbean. That means I wanted to know if females mate just with, you know, one male or if they maybe mate with more than one male. And if, you know, those males also might be mating with more than just one of the females and if I'd be able to detect that. And what I did is I pretty much used like really simple Mendelian genetics. So I think most of us have that in high school where, you know, Mendel kind of figured out that, hey, you know, first of all, we have kind of two sets of DNA. One comes from the dad, one comes from the mom. So that means for eye color, for hair color, we usually have two genes that could, in theory, be expressed. But in our, that's what we call our genotype. But our phenotype might just show, you know, one of the two things. Um, that's like in the most basic form. But that, of course, means that when I sample the moms and then I sample her babies, I know what the mom looks like and I can see the genotype of the babies and I can deduct, okay, if they have two, you know, parts uh, at this one particular gene, like two parts, so one needs to come from the mom and I can always say, okay, I can see which one is from the mom because I know what the mom looks like. And then the mm -hmm. other one needs to be from the dad. And so there is in theory, if this female has mated only with one male, there's only so many combinations that can happen right so let's say she is a b in like you know or she has the genotype a b at this one particular gene 
So, and the dad has CD. So the baby can only be AC, AD, BC, or BD, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. right? So if there's all of a sudden a third or fourth or fifth male gene creeping up that is neither from the mom nor from the other male, then I can deduct, oh, wait a second, there's actually another father that is contributing to that nest. (laughs) So what it looked like, though, was that I went out, I took a snip of skin from the mom, then I put her eggs into a hatchery where I exactly knew or like could control when the babies hatched that I could sample those babies. Mm-hmm. Then I would go out again and try to find that mom again and again because I also wanted to know if there is a difference between her nest because leatherbacks nest on average about five to seven times. So I tried to sample at least two of her nest or more if I was able to. So, you know, people had lists of the of the female ID, that means their external tags and pit tags and whatever. And they knew, oh, okay, this is one of Chris's females. We need to, you know, keep those eggs in the hatchery and let her know that there is a second nest of that female. And then once the baby hatched, I would sample a certain uh, percentage of the nest. And when I, once I had all those samples, I think it was a total about 20 females and then about 700 to 800 baby samples. I had to export them to Germany, which in itself is already a pain in the butt because there is uh, a lot of issues with permits because it's an endangered species. It's called CITES if if you've ever come Mm -hmm. across it. So you need a special permit to export and import it. And then once it was in the lab, I needed to extract the DNA. I needed to do what we call a PCR. So that means because I only took like teeny, tiny, tiny snips of the babies. So in order to see anything on a gel, um, so you can make DNA visible, um, I needed to amplify the amount of DNA that I had. So I used those, those, those techniques called PCR to make more of the DNA that's there. And then I put it on gels and was able to pretty much look at the mom, at the genotype. I could see for each, what we call the loci for each gene, the two different genes that she had. And then, or for each trait, the two genes, and then I could see, okay, these are the babies, and they also have two genes for that trait, uh, or for that losa locus. And then I was able to kind of start deducting, you know, how many dads were per nest per female, and if there was a difference in in males as well for the different nests that the female had, if that makes sense. So that was, you know, months of field uh, of lab work after I was in the field. How many males can they have? Well, I had, I think, up to four different males in the nest, if I remember right. So it was on average usually 2.8 or something like that. Of course, that's not a, you know, it's not, I mean, it has to be a full male, but statistically it was 2.8, I think, if I remember right. But what was interesting, though, is that it seems to be very much uh, correlated with density. So that means populations that have still, uh, you know, high number of individuals usually the level of multiple paternity, as we call it, is a lot higher than in populations where barely any individuals left. So, of course, that, you know, is very some if you already have small population size and then the few females that are still around might not be able to find enough males to mate. And maybe that also impacts the, you know, the fitness of the babies because we don't know if, you know, she is upgrading, for example, each time if there's sperm competition, that means, you know, the stronger and better sperm is pretty much outcompeting the sperm that she might have already mated with and might have just like, you know, produced Mm -hmm. not as fit babies. So 
so there's a lot of interesting implications of that. Um, yeah, that there is definitely an, a density angle to the whole thing. Yes. Oh, yeah. So, you know, you're out at night trying, we, we talked about this earlier, you're walking for weeks, you might find one turtle or you you tag it and then somebody else finds your turtle and lets you know, right? And then, so you're collecting a tissue sample for a mom, which is kind of maybe what, like a hole punch? And then you're taking a sample from her eggs and then that's that's the extent of your field time. Now you're now you're back in the lab and you're analyzing all this and then you're distilling it down. You're putting some math to it, some stats, maybe writing some R code for it, and then then it's published. So it's it's a longer process than just like going out collecting the data and putting it in a database and saying, voila, look at what I did. Yeah, and a lot of times it's you know you there's always this joke that you say when you're in the field, every data line seems like so much. But yeah. then once you start analyzing and writing it up, you're kind of like, dude, I should have. Or when you're in the lab, you're thinking, oh, man, I collected so much. And then when you're writing up, you're like, oh, man, I didn't collect enough. Yeah. Because it's, you know, sometimes a sampling process of like two hours will literally just give you one line of data, like in the Excel sheet. It's one data point. Right. So, you know, it, it, it's, it's an interesting relationship. So as, an, as a recommendation, always collect as much as you can. I mean, without even thinking about it, like if you think you have enough, just go out and collect a little bit more. Yep, all of it. <laughs> even if you're like, that doesn't matter. No, just write it down. You'll thank yourself later. <laughs> and be super organized. Yes, yeah, being organized helps. It does with all your data. Otherwise, it's just a mishmash and nobody wants to go through a mishmash of data. That's true. Now, and, and keep notes on yourself, lab books and stuff. Yes, yeah, that's a good point. So I could definitely talk turtles and nerd out on all your research and we might have to do another episode where we dive more into it. Um, but I want to talk a little bit more what you're doing now. Um, and I feel like where you, what you're doing now got kicked off by a video that you made during your PhD. So you were the one that recorded the straw video, right? That like sparked this movement around the world that woke people up to the realities of plastic and single uses and particularly straws and the devastating impacts it can have on wildlife. What was it like pulling a straw out of a turtle's nose? And did you have any idea that it may have an impact like it did? Yeah, first of all, no, I did not have any idea of what it would become. And I don't even think, I mean, it was just like this moment where we found the turtle and realized it was a straw. It was just like really I mean, we have seen plastic in turtles before, right. right? Even though I don't study plastic in sea turtles, it has been this really sad byline ever since I started. And I think we have seen so many, many cases and so much pain and suffering because of plastic objects. A lot of times it's, you know, grocery bags and other, but it was so weird to find a freaking plastic straw in a turtle's nose. It was just like the location, also the object, and how it might have gotten there. I mean, I think we put a lot of thought of like, how the hell did like that straw end up in a turtle's nose? Right. But I mean, for me, it was really more the moment where usually if I find an animal that is somehow impacted, I am not having the chance of filming it because you, I'm the one that is, you know, trying to relieve the animal of whatever is, 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 yes, is making it suffer. And so that moment, I had this visiting researchers, research on board that was interested in ectobionts. And so after I was done with my team to do all our sampling, 
he was pretty much just kind of going over the turtles and just like take off all the actobines that the turtles had when he found, you know, this funny thing and crossed it in its nose, which we thought it was a barnacle. And then for a while we thought it was a tube worm. And then we figured out, man, it's plastic because one of my local assistants actually bit on it and was like, yeah, this is plastic. <laughs> and we pulled it out. So, I mean, it's just like that, yeah, of course, hindsight is always twenty twenty. I think the only thing was really when we were driving back, we were totally not speaking because we were just thinking, oh, my God, what just happened? Was Did that really happen? Right. And then the second was because my camera had died right after we pulled that straw out. I did not know up until what point had I actually been able to film the yeah. whole process. So we were for like three hours in the dark of if we had even documented of what it was after pulling it out. And luckily it literally had, you know, recorded exactly to the moment where we pulled it out and then it died. So I just didn't have much time to think about it. I just kind of communicated with my professor. I said, Hey, I have this video. It is pretty gruesome, but it shows the realities of plastic. Do you mind if I publish it as is? Because I don't have time to like edit it. I have to go to bed because tomorrow we have a boat day, uh, like getting up at four o'clock again. She was like, yeah, go for it. Like, this is authentic. Don't worry about it. You know, I'm having totally like, I've, I think that's a good idea. So I just started uploading it on YouTube, you know, being in the middle of the jungle, slow internet. And then I went to bed because I couldn't stand there for the next eight hours to wait till it was uploaded. And in the morning, I just checked and I saw, okay, it's uploaded. Then, you know, I locked out of my YouTube account and I left for the day for eight hours on the ball without internet, without any connection to the to the yeah, social media world. And when I came back, like the whole thing had just <laughs> blown up. <laughs> like, you know, my email was like running over and people were contacting us. And when we looked at YouTube and Facebook, it was like, mil no, it wasn't millions in this first, but it was like thousands, which was already very unusual for me i mean i think my youtube channel had like two videos before that and i had like zero subscribers and so maybe two or three of my friends and like you know a few tens of clicks or maybe a few hundred clicks and that was it so having you know i don't know forty thousand or something like it was like was insane and from that it just totally escalated within like a week it was like millions all the media started connecting with us and we were able to talk about plastic which was incredible. You know, it wasn't just people that come to my projects and I give them like a rant about plastic, but I was able to talk to the whole world pretty much about, man, plastic is an issue. Plastic is also impacting my turtles. We all need to do better with plastics. And yeah, that's kind of how it all happened. It's crazy. It's crazy that, you know, one little video sparked such a big movement and I'm thankful that it did because it didn't, I mean, your video did wake up a lot of people to the realities of plastic and our impacts on the ocean. So right now you are with the Footprint Foundation and they're working to end plastic. So it seems pretty fitting that your video kind of led you to this moment. Could you explain a little bit about what Pledge to 2050 is and what you're doing with the Footprint Foundation? Yeah, so sorry, I need to take like a step back to explain it a little bit better because you know, for me, being in during my PhD and being super involved in academics and research, and then also being starting to get involved in this whole advocacy right. thing, I was always I was really enjoying myself because I felt, man, this is a great balance to this really serious, you know, 
sign to sign stuff. Uh, and plus, I mean, all the data that we have, it's just not getting beyond the scientific community. And so I was really hoping to be able to really straddle those two things to continue de doing my science and conservation work, but also being able to advocate for sea turtles against plastic pollution, all of that. And for a while, I wasn't sure if I could do that up until Footprint Foundation came into my life back then, just as the company Footprints. Uh, who are an in-material engineering company that are really trying to disrupt the packaging market and try to provide solutions that especially the large polluters, you know, let's talk about like McDonald's, about Nestle, all of those that always look for excuses of why they can't stop using plastics because there are no solutions. And if there's solutions, they're not scalable or they're too expensive. So they're trying to pretty much eliminate all of those excuses while doing really ethical products um, and yeah, trying to make a difference in the world. And they founded Footprint Foundation and asked me if I wanted to be part of it. And so I had this incredible opportunity that I was also able to negotiate that, hey, we know that you have your nonprofit in Costa Rica and your consultancy in Costa Rica. You can continue doing this because we want you to be you. We want you to be authentic. We want you to be, you know, the marine biologist you are reporting from the front lines of ocean pollution, pretty much. But we want to give you the platform and help you build your own platform mm -hmm. to advocate against plastic and help us, of course, you know, to really educate people to make better choices and also businesses to make mm -hmm. better choices. And so I ended up at Footprint Foundation and um, for a year now. And this year, I'm really excited. We just launched for Earth Day, what we call the Pledge 2050. And this is a pledge where we're trying to get the gen Generation Zs involved uh, of making them understand, okay, we need to do something now. So it's not getting as bad as it is prognosed or predicted mm -hmm. for 2050. I mean, there was this, you know, maybe questionable data in one of the articles um, in scientific articles that said, hey, by 2050, we will have more plastic than fish by weight in our oceans. And of course, that's very, you know, that's pretty overwhelming, pretty devastating, pretty mm -hmm. horrific. And something needs to happen now. And we're really trying to use the power of social media to get people excited to do something against that, to really make the pledge and stop using plastics as much as possible and keep you know pass that message onwards and we're trying to provide information of how you can go about it and so on it's just launched so it's not like it would be the slow start as you would call it so world oceans day is going to be the big big launch with a lot of little surprises though which i'm really excited about which all I right about yet. <laughs> but yeah so definitely a thing that everybody could do uh helping you know my sea turtles in the ocean by using less plastic at home i think that's a pretty easy actionable item um if you want to right and of course educate other people that's always a good thing as well educate your parents educate your grandparents try to make them understand that they don't have to be perfect but just a little thing little things can help and we need pretty much everyone to be on deck and help we don't need you know all of the zero wasters that are just like, you know, the top 1%, but we really need the entire world population to do better mm -hmm. with plastics. And we need to find ways of how we can regulate the major polluters. I mean, I'm not going to lie about that. Unless that is going to change, not much is going to change. Yeah, absolutely. I It's 
funny, like I've worked very hard to phase plastic largely out of my life. And it's once you do it and it becomes a habit, it's very second nature and you don't even think about it. And, you know, it, it takes becoming a habit to make it that easy. Um, but what the, what's the saying? If you 30 days and you anything's a habit, right? So just pick one thing and spend the next 30 days working at it, whether it's you forego the plastic water bottle and you have a reusable one and practice filling that up. Um, makes a difference. Yeah. And, and you know what? We never forget our phones. So obviously, you know, we're able and capable of remembering stuff if it's important to us. And so I just think if it's important to you, you know, to make a difference, then you will be able to remember to bring your, I don't know, reusable cutlery or ask for no straw, bring your own grocery bags and uh, do little changes in your household. Because what I did, I did a challenge in 2017, I think, mm -hmm. maybe 2018, where I was looking for each month for one thing more, because I had already, you know, of course, all the standard things. I did have my reusable coffee mug. I had my reusable water bottle. I had my reusable grocery bags. I had a set of cutlery. Yeah, so that was, and I had shampoo bars at this point already. So I was thinking, okay, what else do I have in my household? Let it be face creams, let it be dishwashing soap, let it be detergent, let it be my, oh, my clothing hangers. So I got really creative, my sponges that I use, you know, to wash dishes. So what else could I, you know, what do you use and usually throw away after a while? Toothbrush, toothpaste, what else can I find and find like good alternatives for? And I did that for a year, for 12 months and just like kept on reducing all of that stuff. And of course, while you're researching different things, all of a sudden there's like this whole world that opens up. It's like, oh my God, yeah, I never thought about why I'm not making my own cleaning products it's so easy and why am I not doing this instead of that and yeah if you just put a little bit of effort into it it's like you can have a huge payout and it doesn't need to be expensive actually I found that I was saving a lot of money by repurposing stuff and like doing mm -hmm. my stuff at home instead of buying expensive products it's amazing the payout that it can be just by by switching to your own stuff I make my own cleaning solution as well and it's like vinegar and a little bit of rubbing alcohol which during the pandemic was kind of hard to come by um but it's only a little bit of a little bit of it and water and all of that's very inexpensive <laughs> <laughs> baking soda is another staple of mine so i want to come back to what you're doing and your nonprofit and your um, consultancy so could you say again what your agencies are called And I have a question for you in regards to them. Kind of describe what you're doing with them, though, please. Okay, yeah. So I have first a nonprofit that I that we founded a few years ago, which is actually I'm the only foreigner, which I'm very proud of because uh, not that I am the only one, but actually that is almost no foreigners on it because the idea was after many years of working in Costa Rica that most of the sea turtle conservation projects or conservation in general are still managed by foreign mm -hmm. organizations or they are managed by maybe Costa Rican organizations, but for people that are not from the area that they are right. doing something in. And I had been around for you know some time and we finally had people that you know got their first biology degrees and were actually capable and having the education to do something. And I want to empower really the local community and especially the ones that are living with the resources that we're trying to protect. And so this is how COAST, Costa Rican Alliance for Sea Turtle Conservation Science, was born. 
Um, so I'm not even the president or director that is actually Ariana, who is the first biologist of this like tiny, teeny, tiny town that has a lot of sea turtles. And uh, most of our research permits are managed over the nonprofit. It's a little bit difficult sometimes to manage the finances as well. And so what I did is I founded also a social enterprise, which is Namaka Conservation Science, with which I'm able to like move funds a little bit easier. It's not perfect yet, but um, yeah, it, it's, it's just a little bit less slow uh, because sometimes, especially if you're working with funds from outside of the country, there were some problems of, of getting them into the country and, and getting the accountability and all of that. And so it's, it's kind mm -hmm. of a double whammy. So most of my projects are, you know, run by coasts, uh, but are financed by Namaka, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and we, what we do is we do conservation of sea turtles and research, and our research is pretty much applied research. So we're trying to figure out, okay, what type of data do we need to provide better conservation, to provide better protection for our turtles? And um, of course, we're doing the beach work that we've already mentioned, and we're also doing in-water work. So I do a lot of uh, habitat use studies. That means I want to know how our turtles swim around in our ocean. So do they, what kind of, or what waters do they use? Because of course, um, you know, not every water is belong to a country. So, you know, beyond a certain, certain mileage, it's actually international waters. And they might even go into the waters of another country. And I try to figure out how the connectivity is, if there are certain migration corridors that, you know, need maybe more attention in future. So we, you know, have to establish some type of protected area that will protect all the animals that are traveling through that corridor. Um, I'm able to establish collaborations with projects that might be operating in the areas where my turtles are traveling to. But I'm also interested, of course, to map out how the turtles are using Costa Rican water so I can make recommendations to the Costa Rican government about how can we extend protected areas? Uh, do we need to establish new protected areas and, and all of that? Because there's very little data on sea turtles and actually their natural habitat. So we have a bunch of data on nesting beaches because that's an easily, you know, easy data set because you just need to kind of walk onto the beach, look for the nesting females. But it's a whole entire different way of catch catching turtles and and monitoring turtles in mm -hmm. water and yeah the satellite transmitting is one way of doing that but it's also really costly so one of our satellite transmitters is about one thousand to two thousand five hundred dollars and that's like the most basic model so it doesn't take a lot of extra data because you can also look into diving uh frequency and dive depth and all of that fancy stuff but you know, I really am more interested in movement. Uh, so it's about a thousand to two thousand five hundred a pop, and we're trying to get more and more, and also use the tracks and the turtles for our outreach because turtles or people turtles as well maybe, but people are usually excited about turtles, and it is very different if you talk about sea turtles as a whole or if you have such a video as the one with the plastic straw where you have the visual of one turtle that is suffering through the procedure of removing it, you know, in close up her face. And the same idea is also like, if you have a group of school kids that actually adopt a turtle, they know their turtle, they've seen the turtle when we installed the satellite transmitter, and then they can follow her online 
of how she moves through the oceans. I mean, they have this immediate, you know, emotional connection because they usually name the turtle and they start to get really, you know, emotionally involved in its well-being as well and start to do a lot of cool stuff because they want to help whatever that turtle's name is in the ocean. Yeah. I love it. I love getting everybody involved. I love the turtle trackers. We have a couple organizations here in Florida that do the same thing. And it is really fun to log on and be like, and where are they now? Oh, they've traveled thousands of miles already. Holy cow. Um, they're impressive cre creatures for sure. So I have a new question I'm introducing to the podcast. If you had unlimited funds that just got, that just got funneled into Namaka Conservation Science and then subsequently coasts, what would you do with that money, right? If legislation or research, unlimited funds, what would you want to study? What I wanted to study or what I wanted to do? Both. Yeah, I guess I shouldn't have said study. What would you want to do if it was unlimited funds, whether it's research or legislation or what would you want to do with the money? I would try to get as many early career scientists, especially women out into the field and be able to like cover their room and board and just be doing cool stuff. And then having, you know, them do all kinds of different projects. I think that would be like, you know, just the equipment for them, everything that they needed to like do a really kick ass study to get to know what it's like to work as a field biologist, because, you know, there is this still this big divide in conservation biology that it sometimes regarded as, you know, kind of the, the rich man's playground. I think also we have a lot of still male, white males around and not a lot of, not enough locals and a lot of, mm -hmm. and at least in Costa Rica, because it's still a very classic gender, you know, very classic gender ideas around. There's not a lot of female scientists, I feel. So I really would like to foster that and do a lot of outreach with kids and then buy all the satellite transmitters in the world and use all kind of cool cutting edge technology to visualize and do some really cool, yeah, behavioral studies and ecological studies and physiolog physiological studies, I think. I mean, hey, gadgets, you know, you can literally, I mean, I could always spend more money. That's not a problem. <laughs> I love it. I love that you were like, I want to get all the people out in the field because that's how I got inspired. That's how I got through my undergrad, right? It was that, that class to Egypt that you were like, okay, this is why I'm doing what I'm doing. So you want to help inspire the others. And then you're like, but I will take all that money and put it on all the turtles and get all the data. That was, that was a perfect scientist answer. Yeah. <laughs> that is it. That would be my dream. And actually I wouldn't even want to be the first author. I want them to do all the work, which is also easy on me, but it feels so good. Like I have had some situations now ever since I graduated where I was able to provide certain opportunities to people and you feel like freaking Santa Claus. I mean, it feels so, 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 so good to mentor people and be not just like an emotional mentor, which I've done for many, many years already, but actually to provide some type of financial support at the right moment that you can see, okay, they have already worked super hard, but this is like definitely giving them the edge and the last bit that they needed to succeed. It feels so, so good, seriously. Yes, that's awesome. I love that. All right, another question, and is it is my favorite to ask. What is your favorite field story or stories to tell? And this could just be the most epic day in the field. You had amazing turtles or whales, best interactions, or it could just be a day where everything seemed to go wrong, but it makes just such a wonderful story now. 
Oh God, I could write a whole book on field anecdotes. Well, we we actually joked about that we could either write a telenovela, which would be like very dramatic about all the crazy stuff that nobody would believe. And then it would just be literally one on one of what we have experienced. Or we write like a field guide on poop stories in the field. <laughs> but maybe I go with most epic. Well, I don't know if it's most epic or not. See, this is difficult. I can't decide because literally, I mean, one of the most beautiful things in my line of work is, is that you have these, you know, net geo moments all the freaking time where you just think, wow, hit me. Is that really happening? This is so incredible, beautiful, of course, paired with really toxic and horrible moments as well. So I don't know. I mean, I always love nights where you have, for example, here in the Caribbean, where you have like a bunch of turtles and you're so busy that you're just running from one turtle to another, barely able to think, you know, of, about yourself, but just think, okay, okay, I need to do this, this, okay, how am I positioning my volunteers? So we're getting the eggs. And then you just are totally pooped by the time you leave such a celebratory mood um, because you've just spent your last four hours surrounded by turtles safeguarding eggs so it's pretty that's pretty incredible yes that is cool it's a cool feeling wildlife just being surrounded by wildlife for hours on end right it's a wonderful thing yeah totally agree i mean i wouldn't want to change my life with anybody to be quite honest (laughs) no you have you have a wonderful story and i love that you're continuing to write it so what is a conservation ask that you would like the audience to take away um, from today's episode that you'd like for them to go forth and do? Yeah, I think important for me is always to, to kind of point out that you don't have to come to Costa Rica necessarily to, you know, help make a difference for my sea turtles, but that can start at home of, in, yeah, in your everyday life. I mean, like we talked about all the different things already that's, you know, might threaten sea turtles, there's plastic pollution, there's climate change, there is overexploitation. So just become, you know, a conscious citizen, try to reduce your emission. I mean, there's a good chance that, you know, if you reduce your animal products that you're eating, that this will help uh, reduce emission as well, that you're reducing your plastic that will also, you know, produce less plastic and less plastic in the environment. And of course, also, I mean, there is a lot of like projects like mine, Um, We are grassroots, right? So we are a small organization, literally like a one or two women show. And we don't have the funds such as a WWF or a Sea Turtle Conservancy. And so even small financial support. So we have a Patreon account on Milky Wire. It's not Patreon. It's it's like a Patreon account, but it's just for conservationists. Mm -hmm. And it's all small grassroots organizations such as mine. And you can literally start supporting us with like $3 a month. And this makes a huge difference if it's, you know, a few hundred people that do that. So it's not breaking your bank. It would be the same as inviting me to a cup of coffee every month. But for us, it means literally if we're able to continue doing what we're doing the next year or not, if I'm able to pay salaries to my locals or not, which of course is also double whammy because if I'm able to employ locals, they will be less likely to go out and poach our turtle nests, right? So it's it's always a win-win situation. Yeah, so I think that are like, you know, the main things that everybody can do at home. Yes, absolutely. Milky Wire, I'll put a link to that in the show notes along with everything else that we chat about today. If listeners want to find you, connect with you, where's the best place to do so? 
Yeah, I'm pretty active on Instagram. So I think that is a good way. At uh, my handle is sea turtle biologist, very uh, non imaginative <laughs> But uh, yeah, so that's a good one. Uh, and of course, email is a, another good one. I think if you're a little bit Google savvy, you will be easily figure out of how to reach me over email as well. And yep. uh, yeah, but any anything like Facebook, Twitter as well. Your Instagram is fantastic. I love the nesting leatherback to Eminem. I I cried laughing watching that the other day. <laughs> uh, yeah, I always, I mean, I don't know. Do you not have that when you see something that you automatically have a little soundtrack in your head? I always have it. And now with the reels, I can literally put that into like real live music. So you can share on my little private films right now. Oh, oh, it's fantastic. Guess who's back with a nesting leather back? Oh, I was like, this is this is gold. Gold right here. All right. I was going to sign off, but I do have one more question. I used to have what's your favorite sea creature, but somebody asked me that and I couldn't answer it because I realized it changes depending on my mood or the day. Uh, so do you have a favorite species of sea turtle? Yeah, leather bags, hands down. Sorry, all the other species. <laughs> yeah. I feel the same way. Why do you love why do you love the leathery bees so much? They're just I mean, they're just the superlative of everything, I feel. They dive the deepest, they travel the farthest, they are the largest. They're like not even real ectotherms anymore because they're able to produce part of their own body heat. I mean, I could just go on and on of how cool leatherbacks are. And it's just none of the other sea turtle species are really able to kind of, you know, measure up with that. It's not. Sorry. <laughs> yep they're pretty cool animals i love it well this was really fun chatting with you today i feel like i could have talked to you about your research for like an entire day so we might have to do this again but thank you so much for your time and for being on the show i really appreciate it yeah my pleasure thanks for having me it was a lot of fun i think i haven't nerded out that hard in a while so that's really cool hey one more thing do you want to dive more into the ocean and marine biology? Need a little guidance on ocean conservation? Head on over to marinebio.life backslash resources. We've got book recommendations, job posting pages, conference suggestions, and ocean-friendly products. All recommendations have been personally vetted by me, and I will continue to add to the collection as I come across cool things to share. Head on over to marinebio.life backslash resources to learn more. See you over there. Thank you for listening to today's show. I'd love to hear any insight you've gleaned. Leave a comment in the show notes or send me an email over at marinebio.life. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a review and of course, share with your friends. If you want more resources for ocean news, including conservation topics and careers, plus personal insight for me that I just don't share anywhere else, join me at marinebio.life and sign up for email updates. Keep after your dreams and making waves in your community one person can make a difference. Thank you so much for listening and I'll catch you next time on the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. <laughs>